How about those kids, huh? What do you think? Yeah. And I just want to say a big thank you and probably a big round of applause to Melissa Barker and Jenny Brooks who put that whole thing together and directed it. And then the other moms like Carrie Faye and Anisha Sheridan and uh, Brenda Kerr who helped uh, be moms and make costumes and clean children and fix their hair and put them in the right place. So, yeah, thank you. And then Pepper Woolsey, who almost dropped his son on your head. Good job. Thanks for doing that. Appreciate that a lot. From Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So this verse speaks about God, yes, speaking to us in many ways through the scriptures, through the prophets, through miracles, through many things. But his final word is through a son. And this speaking through a son was foreshadowed throughout the entire story of the Bible, throughout all of the scriptures from the very beginning, as God regularly kept his promises through the birth of a son. So in Genesis chapter 4, a son named Seth is born to Adam and Eve, but only after they've rebelled against God and only after they've been exiled from his presence, only after one of their sons murders another of their sons, and he too is exiled, and they're childless again. God gives them a son and keeps his promises. In Genesis chapter 21, a son named Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah, but only after they are 100 years old and 90 years old, respectively, They've tried all of their own schemes to have a child. In fact, a couple times they've severely jeopardized God's promises to them, and yet God keeps his promise through a son named Isaac or laughter. In Ruth chapter 4, a son, Obed, is born to a man named Boaz and his wife Ruth, but only after a severe famine. And only after two emigrations of a family, the death of a husband and two sons, and the unlikely match of a Moabite woman with an Israelite farmer, we have the son named Obed born, and God continuing to keep his promises. And in in 2 Samuel chapter 12, a son named Solomon is born to David and Bathsheba, but only after an entitled and prideful king seizes another man's wife, for his own pleasure, then kills that man to cover up his crime. And yet a son is born, and God continues to keep his promises. So no matter how bad or how much this dysfunctional family we call humanity threatens to mess it all up, God continues to keep his promises through all the years. Generation after generation of hopes and fears finally find their target, finally find their landing place underneath the star in Bethlehem when a son is born who was promised long ago. As Isaiah the prophet wrote in chapter 9, For us to a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be No end. See, the Bible is a story of God working out his plan through a dysfunctional family 
warts and all. You know, we all have those embarrassing family moments, right? Stories we don't like to tell or we don't necessarily want people to know about. You remember the scene from Christmas Vacation when they're standing on the front yard and Clark Griswold is attempting to light up 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights on his house, strung out all over his house. And his daughter Audrey mentions that she hopes no one will drive by and see her standing outside in her pajamas. And her grandpa, Clark's father-in-law, was probably right when he quipped, if they know your dad, they won't think anything of it. Of course, it was impossible for Audrey to hide the most ostentatiously illuminated home in America, which likely brought her more embarrassment than standing outside in her pajamas, right? Because if we're honest, families can be embarrassing. They can be difficult, and they're always, in their own ways, dysfunctional. Every family, including yours, congratulations. Because every family is full of sinners. Our short sketch over the past four weeks of Advent has highlighted some of the dysfunction in Jesus' own family tree. We didn't even include some of the sketchiest stories from Jesus' family line. If you're still there in the book of Matthew, this is how Matthew kicks off his gospel. He gives us the family tree of Jesus, warts and all, and just puts it all out there and says, this is the family that Jesus was born into. We didn't meet this woman named Tamar, whose story shines a light on the fact that one of Jesus' most famous ancestors, and you find her in verse 3, One of Jesus' most famous ancestors, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the father of the tribe of Judah, wasn't such an upstanding guy. First of all, he sold his own brother into slavery and then lied to his dad about it for years. He was a womanizer. He married a Canaanite woman, had three sons with her, and then he took the first son and, and got her another Canaanite wife named Tamar. And here's what it says in Genesis 38. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh put him to death. Pretty stark picture. So Ur's younger brother, a guy named Onan, had to marry his brother's wife. That was the custom. You marry your brother's wife, you give her an heir for your deceased brother. That's what he was supposed to do. But he refused to get her pregnant because he knew the son would be his brother's heir, not his heir. So God put him to death for his wickedness as well. By this point in the story, Judah's a little shy about this woman. He thinks that she's a husband killer, right? Why else would all of her husbands, who are his sons, be dying off? So he keeps his youngest son from marrying her. But Tamar, who knows her father-in-law's proclivities, dresses up and impersonates a prostitute, deceives him, gets pregnant, gives birth to two sons. Yes, this is in the Bible, by the way. Gives birth to twin sons, including a boy named Perez, who's right there in the family tree of Jesus. It's a pretty seedy story of immorality and greed and deceit and lust and pride. But there it is, right in the Bible, right there in Jesus' own family. The next woman we meet in verse 5 is Rahab, who was an actual, not impersonating a prostitute, she was an actual Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho. 
So when the Israelites came to invade the land, and starting with Jericho, General Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to scout out the city. They enter Jericho. They go to Rahab's home. We don't know why, to stay, to lodge there. But when the king of Jericho hears about them, he interrogates Rahab. And Rahab has hidden these spies, but she lies to the king. She tells the king they have already left the city, so he sends people to chase them down. And secretly she hides them and she lowers them out of the window in the wall and they're able to escape. And she does this because she fears their God, Yahweh. So this woman of questionable morals takes action and becomes a mediator for her family who is saved. And through her faithfulness to her word, through her trust in Yahweh, her entire family is delivered and assimilates into the people of Israel. And according to Matthew 1.5, Rahab was the mother of this dude named Boaz. Boaz married the third gal in this genealogy named Ruth, who we've already spoken about. The fourth woman isn't even called by her own name in verse 6, but by her husband's name. She's the wife of Uriah, the mother of Solomon, by King David. Now, I've always wondered, why, doesn't, why, is, why does Matthew name all the other women, but he doesn't name this one? He just calls her the wife of Uriah. Is it because he's embarrassed about this story? Well, if you've got all these other stories in your genealogy, you're surely not embarrassed about this one. The reason Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah is to make clear that her son Solomon, King Solomon, his pedigree included a father's act of adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. Let's just be clear about that. We have an adultery and a murder right there. So I think we can all agree that Jesus' family tree is a mess. Can you relate? But we have to also agree that God isn't shy about the mess. He's not trying to hide the fact from us. In fact, he's displaying it front and center. God is not afraid of our messes, which is why he can redeem them at any time. And so the last of our five couples that we've looked at in Advent season, we meet here in Matthew chapter 1. Verses 18 to 25, Mary, a young, engaged woman, betrothed, not married yet, and she finds herself pregnant. Now, in most cultures, this is scandalous. An unmarried young woman, pregnant, and a a virgin conception seems like a really great cover story for immorality, right? Yet another disgraceful circumstance here in the story, it seems like. But unlike many of the previous stories in Jesus' family's tree, this one isn't created by human sin. This one is a divine intervention. God creates the scandal. He willingly, knowingly, wisely, miraculously creates a scandal. And then get this, he inserts himself right into the middle of that scandal. When God enters our lives, when he comes into our world, it's not always pretty. It's rarely easy, and it's usually complicated, which should give us pause if we're people who only think about God when we would like him to make our lives easier. I can promise you that if that's why you come to God, then you should probably look for a different God than the God of Israel, the triune God of Christianity, the one and only true God. 
He won't make your life easier when he comes in. He will make it full. He will make it better, but I can't guarantee he'll make it easier. God doesn't make Joseph's life easier. Here's a man betrothed to this woman who's all of a sudden pregnant, and he has to anguish and probably lose sleep over a tough decision. His reputation could is probably already marred. He's already put to shame. And even though he's been shamed, he doesn't want to want Mary to carry any more shame than she already will. But thankfully, God intervenes and gives Joseph some insight into what he's doing in verse 20. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, of course, obeyed, as did Mary, willingly, and the rest is history. When you were a kid, did you ever wish you had a different family? Like, man, Jimmy's family or Sally's family, whoever, man, they seem so great. They've got a big house, lots of money. You should see what they get at Christmas time. They've got two dogs. The kids can do anything they want. They get everything they want. They're always going on cool trips. They're always having tons of fun. Is that you? You ever wished for that family? Or maybe in anger at one time, heaven forbid, you said to your parents, I wish I had a different family. Well, think about Jesus for a minute. He literally could have chosen any family he wanted to be born into. He could have been born a Herod. He could have been born a Caesar, a Windsor, a Vanderbilt, a Rockefeller. But instead, he chose to be a part of this shady and relatively unknown family of broken people, outsiders, mistake makers, vagabonds, and sinners. He chose a messed up, broken, twisted, dysfunctional family with a checkered past. And in my mind, that's what the incarnation is all about. It's about God entering into our mess and owning all of our dysfunction, taking on all of our baggage and all of our brokenness. He enters into our family. He takes our family name, human, takes that on himself as his own name, as his own, and becomes one of us. Listen, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus becomes Emmanuel, God with us. Not because he has to be with us, but because he wants to be with us. He wants to be with us in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our grief, in our suffering, and in our sorrow. There is no human pain that he is not willing to enter into and walk in with us. And that's what Christmas is all about, receiving the best gift of a God who wants to be with you. It's receiving the gift of God's presence in Jesus and then through Jesus for all eternity. So this morning as we continue worshiping, please enjoy 
Will you draw near to the God who came near and wants to be with you? Merry Christmas. We're going to sing another song this morning. As we do, the ushers are going to pass those bags around again. This is particularly, specifically for the Life Water offering. And so um, if you'd like to give to that, if you're prepared to give to that, that's what that's for as that comes around. The ushers are also going to wait at the back doors afterwards if you want to put it then. And again, you can continue to give towards that project that we're raising money for uh, for the next couple weeks. Let's pray. Our glorious God and Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, the one and only eternal Son of God, Holy Spirit, who comes today and enlivens us and helps us to worship and inhabits our prayers. Lord, we are grateful that you have sent your Son to be God with us. That you have not abandoned us to our own devices, our own brokenness, our own dysfunction, our own sinfulness. You've not abandoned us to the grave or to hell. You have come and you have saved us through a baby, the most humble creature, the most helpless, vulnerable creature we could imagine. As we remember Jesus, Lord, as we come as well with the shepherds and the wise men and the angels to bow down at the manger, we pray, God, that you would work in us your presence, your movement, your grace. Help us to worship. Help us to put our faith and trust in you, the one who came and took all of our stuff on your shoulders. Thirty-three or so years later, you hung it all out on the cross carried the burden and the weight of our sins for us and our punishment so that we could have life with you forever. We thank you, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. In your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.